Linda, good morning, everyone. If you are new here, we're so glad that you're here. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, would love to meet you afterward. Um, we are three weeks in now. Today's our third week uh, in a series on the book of Revelation. Uh, two weeks ago, when we started this series, I said that Revelation, one of its main purposes is to encourage Christians not to tap out or to give up. Uh, and today we'll be in chapters two and three. We're looking at these letters that Jesus wrote to the churches. And, and actually what we see today is some of the background, some of the dangers that these churches were facing. We're, we're getting kind of to, to glimpse in at this, uh, this mail, this, this secret letter. It's not really secret. It was meant to be public, meant to be read aloud in all the churches. But but almost as you're listening to this, you can feel some of the, the weight of what these churches would have felt as this was read aloud in their church. Uh, but we're seeing some of these dangers, some of the temptations, some of the persecutions, some of what they are facing as the schemes of the devil. And, and Jesus is saying, repent of those things where you, where you failed, resist that temptation, cling to me, hold on till the end, persevere it will be worth it. Before we look at those letters, though, just a little bit more background information on them. That'll help us to, to hear this and, and listen to it as we get to it. Uh, John is writing to seven churches, uh, and so we're seeing what does Jesus see in his church. I'm going to put a map up of where these churches are. In Revelation 1.11, says, Write on a scroll what you see. And send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And you can see John's writing from Patmos there and the circular uh, way that this letter would have been carried around to these churches and read aloud in them. And this, this helps us remember that the book of Revelation wasn't originally written to us. It was written to these seven churches that were real churches. Real people, real cultural backgrounds, real sin temptations, real things that they were facing, real persecution that they were enduring. And so that, that just shapes a little bit of how we read these letters, how we read the book of Revelation as a whole, because it can't mean for us what it couldn't have meant for them. And so starting to understand a little bit of what this, what this meant as John's giving them this book that's meant to encourage them. They're meant to understand it. They're meant to be able to apply it and to keep it. Uh, and so that shapes the way that we read it. But it's, it's not just for them. There are clues even in our two chapters today that, that show us this is for us as well. Um, the first is when we come back to, to these numbers. So the fact that Jesus and John chose seven churches to write to. There were, there were many other churches that they could have added. These weren't the only churches that existed. Um, so these seven churches likely are meant to, to symbolize and, and signal to us that this is meant to represent the universal church uh, as a whole. Even though if you're not convinced by the numbers, uh, there's a repeated phrase that shows up in each one of these letters. It says, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says, not just to your church, but to the churches. Um, and so as this was carried around and as they read this letter to all of the churches, there's this call for everyone to hear and apply and learn from what the Spirit is saying to all of these churches. 
the structure of these letters, there's, there's a repetitive flow that comes, and, and you'll hear that as, as you listen to it. I'd invite you to listen to it thinking like, okay, what if I'm hearing this for the first time? This is my church that's getting mentioned, or I know these churches, and you're, you're hearing these evaluations. It's not so much a, like an employee performance evaluation. It's, it's maybe more similar to a doctor who's sitting down with you and saying, look, if this doesn't change, you're going to die. If, if you keep trying to live exclusively on a cotton candy diet or, or just Skittles, you're going to affect your body in ways that you can't recover from. And so there's this, there's this call and, and there's the doctor saying, like, repent or you're headed toward destruction. Uh, there's a seriousness to these letters. It's not just Jesus saying, you're doing good, you're doing bad, Here, here's your grade. No, there's an urgency where he's saying, if you continue down these paths, it's headed toward death. It's headed toward judgment. But it opens, each, each of these letters opens with this description of Christ, the Son of God. And it's pulling from this vision that John had in, that, that Brandon preached about last week in John 1. Uh, where it's describing the Son of God in all of these uh, symbolic ways, not meaning, to t- not, not meaning to tell us what Jesus looks like, but, but truth about who he is and how he is sovereign and how he's reigning and how he examines us. And then, then there's this repeated language of, I know you. Jesus saying, I know you. I know your works. I know where you're struggling. I know where you're giving into temptation. I'm among you, I know you. And then he calls them then to live a life uh, that they are called to, live, live a life maybe of repentance if they're already going down wrong paths or resistance where they're seeing this temptation coming or, or endurance where they're experiencing persecution. So there's a call. And then there's a promise. There's a warning for many of the churches that if you don't repent, judgment will come. Those are sobering, um, but then at the end of every one of them, there's this promise of new creation where we will be with our God, experience eternal reward, and later we'll see how all of those are fulfilled at the end of the book of Revelation. All of those things, all those symbols mentioned, we'll find them in at the end as Revelation describes the new heavens, the new earth. So... I want to put up two different summaries of the book of Revelation. Just one more thing to help give our minds some categories for listening as we hear these letters. The first comes from the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible. Um, If you don't have a study Bible, this is rabbit trail, but I'd really encourage you to get one. Um, This one, I'm also going to put one up in just a minute of the ESV Study Bible. Those are two great ones. This is actually the one that I use the most. Um, but it's describing here the theological message of Revelation. We're going to see that in these letters, and it'll actually help us understand the whole book of Revelation as well. So Revelation's theological message challenges readers to repent of and resist worldly compromise, spiritual complacency, and false teaching. So there's a challenge for, for Christians, for believers, to resist these things. Worldly compromise, spiritual complacency, false teaching. But there's also an encouragement. So there's another purpose here to, to, to fortify, to encourage, to strengthen believers to hold fast to their testimony about Jesus, 
to steadfastly endure trials, and to resiliently hope in God's present and future reign. It's really good. That helps us see and, and anticipate some of what Jesus is going to, to say to them. I really like this next one, though, from the ESV Study Bible, because it pulls some of the themes that are going to come out later and the, the more symbolic visions that are coming later, and, and it explains why. Why is John giving us those visions? Uh, because these are some of the things that the church is facing throughout um, history. Jesus sent his revelation to John to fortify his churches, to resist the wiles of the devil. Whether in the form of intimidating violence, which we'll see later is associated with the beast, or deceptive heresy, which we'll see later is associated with the second beast or the false prophet, or beguiling affluence, which we'll see throughout Revelation described as, as Babylon or uh, this picture of Rome, this prostitute, which is seductive and tempting and looks very attractive, but it, Revelation describes as that she is drunk on the blood of the saints. And so the end of what looks very appealing and attractive is destruction. So these, these three temptations to, to cave under the, the intimidation of persecution... Uh, to give in to false teaching and, and to succumb to the alluring temptation of the material wealth and promises of comfort and ease that we find in this world. So that helps us. Those are things that we can look for, listen for in these letters. For I do, Revelation 1-3 gives us a blessing that helps us helps us know why we should be listening and applying these words. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. So listen to Revelation 2 and 3. Hear what God is calling us to as he speaks to these temptations that his church is facing. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, but are, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered. You have endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But you do have this, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last the one who is dead 
and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, but you are rich. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have this against you. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my people to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching and who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter and he will shatter them like pottery. Just as I received from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the spirit says to the churches. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert 
Strengthen what remains, which is about to die, because I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I've placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power, yet you are holding on to, you have kept my works and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but are Lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy and need nothing. You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich and white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. What if there were one more letter read today? Write to the angel of New Covenant Bible Church. Thus says the Son of God, I know you. I know your temptations, I know your struggles, I know where you're 
falling. I know where you're failing. I know where you're following me. What would he say? This is what we're going to look at as we go through this. We don't have time to, to go through in depth through each one of these letters, but to pull out these three themes, um, seeing how the schemes of the devil are, are at work. So main two points as we go through this. The first is going to be repent and resist the schemes of the dragon and remain faithful to the end. And then briefly, at the end of the sermon, we'll look at the risen Christ who promises to come to bring judgment and eternal reward. But most, mostly we'll be focusing on these schemes of the dragon. Uh, polling from what I got there in the ESV study Bible, repent and resist the schemes. There's these three ways, these three tactics that the devil uses. I'm going to put them up on the screen now. The intimidating persecution, which is... Identified with the beast, the deceptive heresy, the false prophet, and the distracting affluence, the prostitute. Ephesians 6, 11 says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people, it's, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so what are the schemes of the devil or the schemes of the dragon that these early churches faced? Uh, and then thinking, okay, how does this apply to us? Where, where does it look different, but yet, yet applying these same schemes that we'll see today? And so first, the intimidating persecution we know this from historical context, that they were enduring persecution. And we know it from these letters as well. Ephesians, or the Ephesus, in Revelation 2, 3, to Ephesus, he says, commending them, they've persevered. They've endured hardships for the sake of my name. Smyrna, especially, he's, he's saying to them, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. He promises them, you are about to suffer and it's going to get even worse. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison. Be faithful, how long does he say? Until death. And this was, this was faced in those churches. In, in Pergamum, uh, he says that. He says, you have been faithful. You've been holding on to my name when, when persecution increased there to the point that, that one of their brothers, Antipas, was put to death for the sake of God's name, there where Satan lives. So this symbolic language of, of satanic rule and oppression that, that probably is this mixture of the, the Roman outpost that was there and the persecution that came from there as well as um, some of the uh, pagan, demonic uh, cult worship that was in that area. And so he's saying, you're holding on to that even as you go through that. Thyatira are commended for their endurance. Philadelphia, he speaks of this synagogue of Satan. There's a theme through Revelation that, that speaks of how not all ethnic Israel is true Israel. And so how the church is, is now the people of God that's made up of people from not just Israel, but from every nation, from every tribe and tongue. And, and how some of these churches were facing 
the persecution, the slander. They were being turned in by some of the Jews that were in that area. And so he's saying they're not, they're not acting like true Israel. They're actually acting like a synagogue of Satan. And, and that was some of the persecution that they were facing as well. So there's an intimidating violence, an intimidating persecution. That Philadelphia passage gets referenced sometimes by Christians who are hoping we're not going to have to experience at least the great tribulation. Uh, helpful for us, though, as we listen to all these letters, to not think that we should expect what we have right now. Uh, most Christians throughout history, many Christians throughout history, and many Christians alive today are experiencing great tribulation, great persecution, martyrdom, being, being willing to follow Jesus even to the point of death. And so what is the promise that he gives here to this church in Philadelphia? Not that they won't be persecuted, not that they won't maybe even die for their faith, but he's promising to keep them. He says, I'm, I'm going to keep you from that hour of testing. This, this word shows up another time. It's in John 17 where Jesus says, I'm not praying that God would take them out of this world. God, I'm praying that you would keep them from the evil one, that you would protect them from the evil one. In John 16, just right before he got to this, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Not, not a circumstantial peace. No, he says, you will have suffering in this world. There's his promise. You will have suffering in this world. But then he says, be courageous because I have overcome. I have conquered the world. In his prayer, he says, I've given them your word. The world hated them because they're not of this world, just as I'm not of this world. And that's when he says, then I'm praying not that you take them out of this world. So how do we live in this world, in this world that is filled with trials, filled with hardships, may even be filled with persecution for us as we follow Jesus? And how do we live in that knowing that Jesus keeps us? That church in Smyrna where he says, you're going to experience suffering. Don't be scared of it. Don't be afraid of it. Be faithful to the point of death. And then he gives them a promise and he says, because you will never be harmed. By what? By the second death. And so even if, even if God calls you to martyrdom, I'm not necessarily expecting that will happen in our lifetime, but it could if things get so violent in this world that Jesus calls you to be faithful to him, even if it means your death or the death of your family, he is saying, I'm going to keep you. And there is a reward that is coming that it will be worth it and your soul will not be harmed. That's sobering because we may be tempted to shrink back with far less outside intimidation. We're not right now facing physical persecution, but you could be facing intimidation that's tempting you to be silent, tempting you to shrink back in fear. We'll get to some of the application here in just a minute, but let's keep going. The deceptive heresy. Where do we see that? Where do we see the false teaching that was creeping up in these churches it's connected with this 
false prophet, this false teaching. In Ephesus, they're actually commended because they weren't. That was one of Paul's uh, challenges to the Ephesian elders, uh, that, that they would watch out because wolves are going to come in that want to attack the church. But apparently they have stood firm on some of those things. He says, you cannot tolerate evil people. Later he says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. They've tested some of these false apostles that come in. They found them to be liars, that they aren't truly representing Christ. But Pergamum and Thyatira, those are the two that are the, the clearest examples where false teaching is creeping in and, and it's deceiving people in the church and they're tolerating that. These Old Testament references in Pergamum to Balaam and, and Balak, there's this reference to, to where they're, because probably motivated by financial gain, uh, they're going to side with the idolatry around them. Uh, and in the context that John's writing to here, he's saying that they're committing sexual immorality. They're eating meat sacrificed to idols. And um, most commentaries, uh, commentators look at this and think it, it could have been physical sexual immorality that's, that's becoming part of this. But, but there's also a spiritual adultery that is a theme through God's word and is a theme through Revelation uh, where they're they're participating in the pagan idol worship. That's the, the reference there to the meat sacrifice to idols. And, and along with that, there could be some sexual sin that is included. But all of it, though, is like, is like an abandonment or a turning or a cheating on the true God and siding with the gods of this world. The Nicolaitans are also mentioned. And in Thyatira, we, we don't know everything. I mentioned that, I think, at the beginning. There's, there's some of this cultural background that we don't know all of, of exactly what the Nicolaitans held to, but we know that it must have been some kind of false teaching like this that was creeping in and tolerated. In Thyatira, it says they've got this prophetess, Jezebel, who's there. Um, whether that was her actual name or, or, again, kind of this allusion back to that she was acting in similar ways to Old Testament Jezebel. She's, she, this was a lady that they would have known who was prophesying, who was teaching and deceiving, deceiving them to, to turn away from God and commit sexual immorality. And there's this, there's this warning of judgment that as, as she teaches and deceives them. People are being swept into this of, of identifying more with the false gods and their ways of worship than with the true God. And we'll think about what are some ways maybe that we're tempted to reject the authority of God and his word. That false teaching begins to creep in for us. But, but before we do, one last thing. What about the distracting affluence this maybe is just seen here in some of the complacency. The clearest church that we see it in is Laodicea. They're described as neither cold nor hot. Um, some of the historical background there helps us see, oh, God's not saying, I wish you were really spiritually cold or spiritually hot, like I wish you either hated me or were on fire for me. No, he's, he's pulling something from uh, their historical, cultural background of the way that they got water and how a lot of times by the time water got them, they didn't have fresh water, and so it would come there, and this lukewarm water would cause them to be physically sick. And so there, there was a difficult way that they had to go about uh, handling water. Um, and so he's saying that cold water has good benefits, hot water has good benefits, and so there's something about them, though. Here's what he's really getting at. You're disgusting. 
make, you make me sick. And what is it, though? What is it about them? It's, it's this attitude that they have where they say, I'm wealthy, I'm rich, I need nothing. God, I don't need you. Obviously, I'm, I'm prospering. I have what I need. I don't really need the Lord. And so there's a complacency that, that seeps in, a lukewarmness that seeps in of this um, because of the allure and the temptation, the materialism, the comfort that they were experiencing in this world, they thought they didn't need God. Ephesus um, was a little different description, but it says that they're, they're holding to all these truths. Um, they're, they're rejecting false teaching, and um, they've endured, and they've, they've kept these things, but they're, they're real inward focused. And, and then it says, and, but you've lost the love that you had. So there's a warning there for us that, that even, even if we think that we know all the right things, that there could be a warning of our hearts becoming cold, um, abandoning the, the kind of love, the kind of fervent passion and heart that we had for, for God, the love for him, maybe the love for our neighbor, the love for others around us, the love for being his faithful witness. Because what's said to Ephesus is that if you keep going down this way, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Lampstand has this imagery of, of you are the light of the world. You're my light to the world in this place. And the way that you're acting, though, of, of just holding to these truths without any kind of love, you're, you're ceasing to act as a light to this community. You're ceasing to act like a true church because your love is gone. You're just going through the motions. Sardis, we don't know all that was going on with them as well, but we do know this. They had a reputation of life just looked at that church from afar and you saw life, activity, movement. It looks like there's success happening there, but God says, but in reality, you are dead. He doesn't give up on them. He says, be alert, strengthen what is there, what, is, what does remain, and fan that into flame. Repent of the way that you're acting. So we see these three things, this Intimidation, persecution, the deceptive heresy, the distracting affluence. Where do we see this for us? We don't have Nicolaitans running around that I know of, but there are different kinds of false teaching. We don't have some of the same, so the interpretation as we start here with these churches, but now as we see these things, we see the devil is doing and threatening with these same big categories. So where, where we just finished with spiritual complacency or apathy or a spiritual pride, boy, we feel that, don't we? We see how that could be. We could be really vulnerable to that temptation. As we, we are, in all historical comparisons, and, and even for many around the world, we do have a lot of affluence, a lot of wealth, a lot of material Things that could tempt us. Our lives can easily be very busy with a lot of stuff, a lot of fun, a lot of entertainment, a lot of good. And the, the call isn't don't have stuff. It doesn't say that. But, but is the heart temptation there that because I have this, I don't really need God. I don't really need his church. I don't really need his word. I don't really need to pray. And there's a spiritual pride that we have that we could be tempted with of, 
of saying, I'm comfortable, and it leads to what? How does it show itself spiritually? In apathy, lethargy, just kind of coasting, going through the motions, distancing ourselves from a hunger and a thirst for God and his word and his church and his righteousness. What about, though, these other two, like the, the intimidation of persecution or deceptive heresy? I think that, that these could be temptations for us as well, though we don't have the same kind of persecution right now. I mentioned this already. We, we could already, though, just of fears of how we're going to be viewed, be intimidated into silence, shrinking back, um, really comfortable among people who think like us, um, surrounding ourselves by people who will not judge us, who will not look down on us because we're, we're afraid of what the world will think of us. Uh, and that could silence our witness if we're just intimidated, even by that, of what will people think. But it could get worse. I want to I say that to us. Things, things could get worse. And will we be ready to stand, even if it means financial problems, um, even if it means we're canceled, even if it means all these different things of the threats of this world, even if it means physical persecution, are we willing, are we willing to stand or will we shrink back in fear? But it could also cause us to compromise, even on things like teaching. And so maybe some of the deceptive heresies, I mean, there are all kinds of heresies that could, that could be creeping into the church of just this, this general thought that if God is love, he doesn't really, he can't care about sin, he won't judge. Uh, this general thought of uh, maybe God's word isn't really true. Uh, maybe this has just been cultural. Maybe, you know, these things. So there could be real subtle things that start but then grow, even all the way to the point of saying, I don't even know if Christianity is true. But, but anywhere in between there. Or maybe it's just, I don't know if, if God can be trusted on some of these ethical claims that he has on people and maybe the sexual ethic that uh, God holds up and, and in a desire to love, which is a good desire, we should love all people. We should show kindness and grace toward all people and to love our neighbors as ourselves and to seek to understand and to empathize. But that can lead us as well to saying, then, but then I, I just doubt that God is true, that he's right, he, he, he should just be loving, accepting of all, should not call things sin. And, and so in a, in a desire, this could, be, this could be a subtle heart temptation. Just ask yourself, is this in me? That because of my desire for prestige or acceptance or power, I'm going to compromise on some of these truths because I want the world to accept me. I'm going to compromise on some of these things. I'm not, not saying, oh, oh, we shouldn't be loving, but no, but are we going to say, yeah, so maybe let's we'll just keep this, keep this to ourselves. Maybe don't really say what the Bible says about sin. That could be a temptation, right? And, then, and that could grow in us. And it could be because of a fear, like I want to be accepted. I want, I want to be liked. But, but listen, hear this. It could be, just the opposite side. Same heart temptations. I want to be accepted. I want to be liked. I don't want people 
um, judging me. And so I'm going to side maybe politically um, in ways that I, I hope are going to protect me and my power and my position and my comfort and my liberties. And those things aren't necessarily bad, but, but similarly, they could, they could make us vulnerable to temptation to where I'm willing to compromise on other things that are that don't go along, that don't follow Jesus' ethical teachings and Jesus' command and his examples, that, that, that because we're, we're willing to align ourselves so closely in, in, in order to protect ourselves because of fear. Both of these things could be fear-driven of where I'm going to then align myself with unholy alliances. Revelation's going to talk about that. There's these beastly things that show up as, as we try to protect, as we try to um, control, as we are afraid, and so it causes us to compromise on what's truth, on what Jesus has taught. This isn't meant to be a message about politics, but just for, for all of us, and not to divide, but for all of us to see as we view these things, it, it is, it's hard for a Christian um, to, to view these things and to live in this world and to think. And there's, there's good wisdom, and I'm not giving you advice now on how to think through how to vote or what political party to be involved in or how to choose between lesser of two evils or what you think is best. But just, just this warning, though, that regardless of how you view those things, there could be a temptation to compromise, could be a temptation to align ourselves so closely that it's dri that's driven by a fear. But, but then where's this promise going? The, the risen Christ promises to come, bring judgment and eternal reward. This, we see this judgment all through. I'm just going to go through them real quickly. In Ephesus, he says, if you don't repent, I will come to you, remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Pergamum, he says, so repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly, fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Thyatira, he says, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Sardis, he says, repent. If you're not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. Laodicea, he says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. A few of these, he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come. Just a quick word about that. How, how could that apply to these churches? Some of these, most of these churches don't exist. Some of these places are in ruins. So how does this apply to them? Is Jesus not fulfilling his promise? I, I do think that some of these comings that he says, that he's speaking about, that I'm going to come upon you, are not the same as the second physical coming of Jesus that's talked about at the end of Revelation. No, these, these are promises. At the, at the beginning, he says to Ephesus, I am the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So he's here, church. He is with us. And he's promising these churches that if you don't repent, I'm going to come upon you with judgment. And these are real promises, real judgments. And likely, some of these ways, he did come in judgment. There is a warning, a sobering warning for his church. But, but there's also this promise of future reward. 
And this is, this is what sustains us. This is what gives us hope. As he gives these calls, as he, as he says these hard things, he is telling us that the, to do these things, to fight against these things, to resist these things, this is worth it because of your life. The, the stakes are so high. And so we're, we're motivated just by who Jesus is. That, that opens, but then it closes. Each letter closes by this promise of future eternal reward. I'm gonna put up on the screen where all of these things that are mentioned show up at the end of the book of Revelation. They're, they're referenced again. They're pulled out again as, as John is writing here about the new heavens, the new creation, the new earth. So the tree of life is mentioned in Revelation 22. The hidden manna is mentioned in Revelation 19. Ruling over the nations is mentioned in Revelation 22. The morning star Christ is mentioned in Revelation 22:16. Clothed in white is mentioned, Revelation 21:2. The book of life, 21:27. Inclusion in the temple of God, that we are part of his temple, 21, 22 through 27. This new identity, the new name, our new citizenship, Revelation 22, verse 4. And so there is a promise that is held out for us that as you go through difficulty and hardship and temptation and where you need to repent and resist these schemes of the devil, where, where you maybe even today, as you've heard God's word, have been convicted in your soul to turn away from those things and to turn to him because there is a promised reward. And even if things get really, really bad here, even if you are killed for your faith, it is worth it because there is a glorious reward. This life is short. Eternity is long. And there is a promise that he's holding out for us. And so, church, we resist. We hold on until he comes. Let's pray.